Well, good morning. It's good to have everybody here. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, there's a handout if you want to look at it in the bulletin. If not, that's fine too. But uh, Luke chapter 3, we want to handle verses 21 all the way over to chapter 4, verse 13. And relax. There's a huge genealogy in there. I am not going to read all those names. So, yeah, yeah. So it, 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 that, that, would be a, that would be a trick for all of us. Um, I was thinking about titles and designations that we give people. Um, take one of my boys as an example. I will sometimes look at my at him and 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 kind of define him as there's a soccer player, right? Or or a student, not always a good student, but a student. Or a son. And designations do different kinds of things, don't they? Sometimes they highlight somebody's responsibility that they're given. Sometimes they highlight their relationship with another. When we come to John chapter 3, verse 21, what ties together the baptism of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, and the temptation of Jesus is a designation for Jesus as son of God. Now, we sang, that was a beautiful beautiful song. I mean, that, 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 praise the Lord. When I say son of God, to designate Jesus as the title for Jesus. If you're like me, the first thing I think about is the fact that he's deity. Don't you? Son of God, deity. And that's true. Okay? In the scripture, scripture will talk about that. But in Luke, before Luke gets to unpack that in greater detail, he uses the word son of God specifically in light of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The fact that God has become a man. And Jesus, who is both God and man at the same time, he looks at Son of God in light of who he is, in light of his incarnation. Largely for what he does as as our Messiah. So I just, I want you to watch that as we kind of walk through here. Here's what I want you to remember. Way back in the, uh, at the birth of Christ, before he was born actually, way back in Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, Gabriel is standing before Mary and says, Jesus will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Do you see how Son of God is tied into Messiah there? Do you see that? Okay. At the age of 12, when Jesus comes up to the temple, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, and the mom and dad finally came back and they found Jesus and they were, as you remember, were pretty annoyed by the whole thing. Remember what Jesus said? Did you not know that I must be about what? My father's business. So, at his birth, son of God. At the age of 12, didn't you know I'm the son of God? And we wait 18 years. 18 years. And at the baptism... Jesus is introduced, and what is said? Notice Luke chapter 3 and verse 21 at the baptism. Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. 
The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven and said, Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. So Jesus steps on the scene, and before he even, we even hear him say something that's recorded, the first words that Luke wants us to know is, the Spirit comes upon him, because that's important for, for a Messiah, right? That he actually lives in the power of the Spirit. The first words from God's mouth are, you are my beloved son. Now let me mention something else to you. If you looked up the word son of God, and you ran it through the Old Testament, you would find it's used for a variety of groups of people, different groups. Do you know sometimes son of God is used for a king in Israel? Go back to Psalm 2. The king is going to be coronated. Matter of fact, the words here almost sound exactly like Psalm 2. Sometimes God can talk of a son of God as a king because a king was an earthly figure representing God, or supposedly. Do you know sometimes son of God is used for angels in the Old Testament? It's used for the nation of Israel in, Ephesians, in Exodus 4. Ephesians 4, that would be an interesting one. Exodus 4. So, son of God is a term used in a variety of ways. And what happens in Luke, Luke is bringing it all together and he said, but he is the unique son of God. And when he says here at the baptism, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. One of the things he's telling us is this. Look back at all of the anointed kings in Israel's history. And you know what you find with every one of them? Failure. One right after another, after another fails. But here is the ultimate son of God, Messiah, king. And I am pleased with him because he will never fail. So at the baptism, first words out of God's mouth, my son. But he's like no other son that you ever heard of before. And then we come to the genealogy. Now, let's see here. Yeah, well, I think I went, okay. Don't worry about this in great detail. I just, just want to throw this at you to think about. One of the things when you're reading through your scriptures, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's always kind of interesting to see they, they never contradict each other. They complement each other, but it's interesting to see how they complement each other because sometimes they emphasize different things. One of the things you'll find out if you're reading in Matthew's gospel, the genealogy is the first thing you read, isn't it? First thing. Luke purposely waits and sticks it here after the baptism. And I don't know about you, but I'm asking myself, huh, like, why does he do that? What's he thinking? You know what else if you read Matthew's? Matthew's genealogy goes back through David to Abraham. You know how far back this genealogy goes? Look, look at verse 38. How far back does it go? It goes all the way back to Adam. And I'm asking myself, what's up, Luke? Like, why did you go back through David and not stop at Abraham? You went all the way back to Adam. We should ask ourselves those questions, right, when we read. Here's what I want to argue. Let me just read the beginning of verse 23. I'm going to skip all of those names, okay? Verse 23. When Jesus began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. 
being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and then dot, 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 dot. Look at verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the what? Son of God again. Whoa, 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 whoa. You mean Adam was the son of God? I mean, he's like, he wasn't deity. No, he wasn't. But he was to represent God, wasn't he? He was created and he was to represent God as a human to humanity. And there was supposed to be this perfect world. Something kind of happened though, didn't it? It's called the fall. It's called sin. And everything went south because of that, didn't it? And again, in having a genealogy talking about the ministry of Christ at the age of 30 and running it all the way back to Adam, you know what we're finding out? Two things. Number one, Jesus is human like all these other people. But he's human in a very different way. Because Adam and every other human being that came after him, sinner. Jesus, supposedly the son of Joseph, and the reason he wasn't was because he was virgin born, right? Jesus was fully human, but he was unique and he was sinless. So Luke is saying, look, when you think of the son of God, can you think of kings in the past? Oh, yeah, yeah. But he's not like any other king. He's the sinless king. He's the perfect king. I am well pleased with him, God says. When you think of the Son of God, can you think of Adam and all humans at one level who are supposed to represent him? Sure. But he's like no other human. Because he's going to live a perfect life. Well, could you prove that? Yeah, let me talk to you about the temptation, which is the very next passage. And this is really when I'm, where I want to kind of camp out. So don't get too excited if you said, hey, Pink Blinder went 321 to 38 here in just a couple minutes. We're going to slow down here just a little bit on the last 13 verses. All right, so, so don't get too excited about it. All right. I want to unpack the temptation with you, and, and, and I, have, I have to tell you, um, in the last couple months, I, I've thought really, really, really hard about Jesus' humanity. Now, was Jesus God? Yes, 100% God, div divine nature, 100% man, human nature. Jesus says the person was all of that. One of the things I think you need to remember about the temptation, I, I, I'm hoping I can explain this in a way that makes a lot of sense. Um, if you were to ask me, I don't know, 10 years ago, Doug, could Jesus sin? What's the answer to that? No. Why? I would have said, because he's God. And that's true. I mean, it, it, would it, is it possible? Could Jesus actually sin? The answer to that is no, because of his divine nature, right? Second question. Did Jesus sin? And the question to that is no. Why didn't he sin? Well, my gut reaction 10 years ago would have been the same reaction. He did not sin because he's divine. And you know what happens when I think about that? I think to myself, 
then it doesn't sound to me like a temptation. Does it? I mean, if you come and you tempt God and God can't sin, like, what, what, like where, where's the temptation there? But my answer to the second question is actually wrong. Jesus could not sin because he's God. That's true. Jesus did not sin because he obeyed God out of his human nature. Let me give you an illustration. Maybe this will help. I like to swim, believe it or not. You may not think it looking at me, but I, I, I do. I swim twice a week and, and could be worse. Um, and um, suppose I told you I'm going to swim across the English Channel. Now, that would be a miracle in itself. Okay, but just say, I'm going to swim across the uh, English Channel. Um, and, and suppose I was a good swimmer. Now, there's always the potential of drowning, isn't there? So what typically happens is if some guy's going to swim across the English Channel, you have a boat going along with him, don't you? And in case the guy starts to go under, there's somebody there to grab him. So, if I'm swimming across the English Channel, can I drown? Well, if the boat's there. No, no. I can't drown because the boat's there. But I do not drown because the boat's there. I do not drown because I swim. Jesus could not sin. Divine nature's there. Jesus did not sin because he swam. He resisted. He struggled. He obeyed. He grew. He grew all of that. Does that analogy kind of make sense? And so when we read the temptation of Christ, don't just say, oh, no biggie, he's God. Because as he resists, he resists in obedience to God by the power of the Spirit out of, his, out of his human nature, which gives you and I all kinds of encouragement, doesn't it? Okay, so let's, let's jump in and see what the text says. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Who brought him there? Who brought him to the wilderness? The Spirit. Who led him about the entire time that he was in the wilderness? The Spirit. And one of the things Luke wants you to know right up front is when you think of Jesus Christ and his anointed ministry and as he's living out as this Messiah, he does it under the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that. Something else. How many days did Satan tempt Jesus? Forty. Do you think these are the only three temptations he had? Or do you think this is kind of the, the culmination at the end of that period of time? And, and the other thing we don't think about, that about and it, it's the last verse, in chapter 4, verse 13, but listen to what it says. When the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from Jesus for the rest of Jesus' life. Is that what it says? It says, until an opportune time. When you think of the temptation of Christ, 
Do not think one quickie, three temptations, and that's it. Think of 40 days of temptation culminating in the three we're going to read. And think of a ministry of three and a half years where Satan looks for every opportune time possible to step in and tempt Jesus again and again and again and again. And at the Garden of Gethsemane, again in intense ways, right? Where Jesus tells, says, says to his other guys, pray that you don't enter into temptation. And then Jesus prays. And even on the cross, as people walk by and they say, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. Three sweeping statements about, hey, don't do this. Jesus resists. You can't look at Christ's life as, well, he was only tempted three times. And hey, you know, God doesn't sin, so no biggie. <laughs> you need to think ongoing temptation. When you read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, 4, and 5, 5 in particular, the Bible tells us that Jesus in his life cried out and prayed to God throughout his life because he knew what was actually coming. And he grew through that, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 5. And then he died for us on the cross. Don't think ease. Don't think no biggie. Does that make sense? This was intense that our blessed Lord became one of us and functioned out of his human nature as one of us perfectly. It was struggle and it was pain and he obeyed. We need to see that, folks, or else the temptation will mean very little to us. First temptation, the end of the 40 days, verse 3. And the devil said to him, if you are what? If you are the son of God. Oh, so you're supposed to be this one that God is pleased in. You're better than any other king or any other human. You're the God man. You're this unique virgin birth, all this stuff. Okay, how about a trick? Look what it says. Tell the stone to become bread. Could Jesus have done that? Yes. Now, now, is that a temptation for you and I? No. I mean, honestly, you say, Doug, you know, I was walking up here today. I looked at this. And I said, man, I don't know. I'm really feeling like, should I turn into a stone or not? I, don't, I mean, should I turn into bread or not? What, that, that temptation, if I had it, it's only in the figment of my own imagination. I can't do anything with that thing. But Jesus could do that, couldn't he? At one level, I read this temptation. I thought, what's the big deal? Say, all Satan, I mean, the next temptation, I know, that's a big one, where he says, worship me. Okay, that's, that's major. But this one, he says, look, um, why don't you just, it's been 40 days and you're hungry. There's a lot of stones around here. You just turn them into manna, to bread, and, and you know, go, I mean, it sounds like a pretty good idea, actually. Doesn't it? Notice Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, it is written, and he now he's, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, man shall not live on bread alone. And we know from that passage it says, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What was going on here with this temptation? It's a tricky one, it seems to me, isn't it? 
And this is what I want to argue. Satan is saying, you know what? Your life is supposed to be everything about depending upon God and the spirit and living out obediently and all that kind of stuff. Just kind of forget, put that whole God thing, I mean, God the Father thing aside. Just kind of function out of your divine human nature and turn that thing into, that, that into bread and kind of go on with life. Just kind of live independently. Come on. You can do that. Well, then all of a sudden I begin to say, oh, I know what that was about. Because there are times in my life where the difference for me is I, I, there's nothing I really, I can't do anything apart from God's enabling grace. I just don't always realize that. And there are times where I step out and I say, this has to be done. And I step out in front of God. I, I, I just almost kind of ignore him and I just start doing my own thing thinking Doug Finkbeiner can do this. And I'm, I'm acting independently of God. Do you ever do that? And that's the temptation here. And Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and every one of his quotations comes out of Deuteronomy, a time when Israel too has wandered through the wilderness. And how well did they do with that experience? Would you give them a thumbs up? Thumbs down. The Son of God Israel, because they're called that in Exodus 4. The Son of God, when you look at the wilderness experience, all you see is failure everywhere. When you look at this son of God in the wilderness, all you see is success all the way through. And he says, unlike the nation, yes, I could do that, but I will not step out underneath of the authority of my father and act. I will depend on him to provide for me as he sees fit. I will not act in pride. Instead, I will depend. Satan says, nuts up with something else here oh he's got a great one and i don't know how he did this exactly okay this next temptation is really interesting i mean is this a vision like listen to, listen to it he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time now how do you do that probably some kind of vision or else you know some real aerial shot from way up high you know what i mean but, but nonetheless however he did this he lays before them all the kingdoms of the world. Now, I have a question for you. At the end of the age, who will rule all those kingdoms? Jesus. But what does he have to do to get there? Between now and that exaltation, there's a lot of pain and suffering. Wouldn't it be nice to avoid all that? <laughs> you know, just kind of step around it and get the kingdoms. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't let make life kind of easy. So look what Satan says. I will give you all this domain and all of its glory. For it has been handed over to me and I will give it to whomever I wish. That's actually not true, is it? Now, he does have control over what's going on, but ultimately God does, and he doesn't ultimately have the right to give that to whoever. So it's a bit of a lie, fair enough. But nonetheless, it's a temptation. All you have to do is verse 7. If you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus, 
let's avoid, let's take a detour around all that. And, and, and if you, instead of worshiping God, if you just worship me, I'll give you all this stuff. Do you ever be tempted? Have you ever been tempted like that? We have things down here at the end. Um, will we all experience perfect relationships one day in glory? Yeah. No fights in heaven that I'm aware of. I mean, Tim, I haven't seen. You know, I mean, you're doing revelations. It's not there. Perfect relationships. Do we crave perfect relationships? We, 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 meaningful relationships, which God gives us in a variety of ways. And there are times I've seen young people that have said, you know what? It's too hard to remain single. I want relationship. And they will go around and disobey and worship something else that they might have, what they think is going to be really good. And it's a catastrophe. And Satan says, detour. All you have to do is worship me. Just worship something other than God, and you get that. What does Jesus say? Verse 8. It's a pretty short answer, also from Deuteronomy 6. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus, you are sealing yourself to three and a half years of difficulty and then the worst possible experience on the cross of Calvary when you die for the sins of the world. Are you kidding me? Jesus would say, I know. I will not detour. I will worship the true and living God no matter what it takes me to. If that's what he has for me. Wow, folks, that's, that's hard. And that speaks to me. Because I don't know about you, but I'm always looking for detours. Yeah. Simple detour, you know, get that promotion. If I just step aside and do something dishonest, I could get that promotion. Or I will worship the Lord God. And whatever that brings, it brings for his glory. That's not easy. Whatever profession you're in, whatever neighborhood you live in, whatever your family's experience is like, that is just plain hard. And Satan comes and says, detour. And Jesus says, I will worship God through the very depth of suffering. Because he alone is worthy. Wow. Satan's not doing so well. So he comes up with another idea. He, he realizes he, he's pretty smart. He's thinking to himself, you know, Jesus keeps throwing Bible at me. I will throw Bible at him. But look what he does in the third temptation. Verse 9. He led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, okay, you're this long-awaited Messiah one. You're unlike the nation. You're unlike Adam. You're unlike all these other kings. Okay, whatever, whatever, whatever. Throw yourself down. Take the plunge, several hundred foot plunge from that, that, from that pinnacle of the temple. It'd be pretty impressive, actually. For it is written, Jesus in Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, 
this is what the Bible says. He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up. Lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus. There's this great Bible verse. That says. He protects his own. So that they don't dash their feet upon the ground. So why don't you go up there where everybody can see you. You are supposed to be a miracle worker aren't you? Come on. Go up there. And jump. And that will be impressive when it will be almost like a parachute effect, right? It all slow down and stands right down there. And impress. Come on. Satan is subtle. Does he ever use scripture to tempt us? Is it possible to take a passage of scripture? Can I tell you, look, 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 look. If you follow Jesus, you will be healthy and wealthy. Has anybody ever said that anywhere? Turn on the TV. It is possible to take scriptural texts and manipulate them in such a way that people will presume upon God. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I often wonder, you know, where these guys will say, look, if you send in $10, God will give you back 100 You send in 100 he'll give you back 1000 1000 10, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to think to myself, hey, it's a pretty good deal. I think I'll send, send in $10,000. i will borrow it. I'll get 100000 back. It's a whole deal thing that that, that you could be working on with that kind of mentality. And so what happens then is I'm presuming upon God, aren't I? I'm stepping out and I'm saying, God, you said this, so I'm going to do something careless and you've got to cover my back. Jesus hears that whole thing and says this in verse 12. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Satan, devil, you have totally misunderstood that text. That is not a text that we use to manipulate God with. That is a promise from God that he will fulfill in his time, in his way. But we don't push God. Rather, in patience, we wait upon God. And I will not presume upon my father. Did you ever do that? I read all these temptations. I see my name everywhere. It's like that Visa commercial. You know, that's what my name just goes everywhere. So I function in pride sometimes. I, it's not like I'm doing anything against God so much. It's like kind of like I don't quite need him. I'll just kind of handle it on my own. I do. Do I sometimes replace God and worship something else because it'll benefit me, I think, in the immediate run? I, 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 I do. Do I sometimes presume upon God and push him to do something he hasn't actually promised and then get mad at him when I don't get it? I do. I do it all. And Jesus didn't do any of it. (laughs) Through that entire experience, if you're the son of God, look at that. If you're the son of God, every time he shows us he's the son of God. In a way that is unique from the way that is used for any other person in all of history. 
He's the unique son of God. I keep forgetting about my PowerPoints. All right. So, first temptation, pride versus dependence. Pragmatism versus submission. Presumption versus patience. Here's the other thing I guess I'd like to say just kind of as we're wrapping up. In the past, I was thinking back times I've heard this passage preached. And, and I'm not saying a, a preacher meant to say it this way, but at least it's what I picked up. So perhaps the problem was mine and not theirs. But sometimes the way I've heard this thing preached is, you know what? Jesus used the Bible. We should use the Bible. So the way to handle temptation is use the Bible. Is that true? I would say that's true. It's just not quite complete. Because as you think about this passage, three things run through this passage. And here it is. Jesus was God-centered. Every text he reached to in Deuteronomy was about, you don't tempt who? God. You will only worship God. Man won't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, everything was God-centered. And everything was spirit-empowered. Luke doesn't want you to miss that. Filled with the Spirit, he came into the wilderness. And 40 days while he was in the wilderness, the Spirit was leading him. Spirit-empowered. And thirdly, he was word-focused. Folks, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we have those three together, that is a recipe for growth. For him... It was a recipe for perfection. I'm never going to be perfect. But we can progress. And so that's one of the things we learn here. To end it all up, notice then, do I, yeah. And you know what? Look, if you're, if you're, if you're a, a PowerPoint guy, I am violating one of the basic rules of PowerPoint on this one. You should never put this many words on a PowerPoint. I mean, you just... I mean, when I teach this stuff to seminary students, when I made this thing up, I said, you're violating everything that you teach, but tough, I'm doing it anyway, sorry. I just wanted to get it all up there, so there it is, sorry. So I, I, I could have done this three, but they're all, it's all there. It's a lot of stuff. You have it on a handout, too. Don't worry about writing any of it down. But here's the point. As the Son of God, Jesus is the foundation, the model, and the mediator of our faith. Let me just kind of walk you through this real fast, because I think it's really important. Because at the end of the day, the better we see Jesus, the more likely we can change. Isn't that the truth? Jesus, first, we can look to Jesus as the perfect Son of God who will save us and rule us. Doug, is there something unique here? Yeah, absolutely. Like Satan, I don't think Satan has ever tempted me personally, and I'm very happy about that. Or you. Got bigger fish to fry. But Satan tempts Jesus with temp temptations that are uniquely bound up in Jesus as Messiah. I understand all that. 
So when I look at this passage and I look a failure of human kings, I look a failure at the nation of Israel, I look a failure of humanity in general, I look and I finally say, we have somebody who's perfect. For he alone could die for our sins because he was sinless, folks. Yeah, there's no question that that's the primary thrust of this passage. I, I, I fully agree. But secondly, we can imitate him as the exemplary son of God who calls us to follow him by the Spirit. Perfectly? No. Progressively? By his grace? Yes. Do me a favor this week. Try to be try to be a bit self-critical of what happens during the week. You know about that time when you're getting, getting kind of annoyed at your wife or your husband for something? Just, just, just stop for a moment and say, uh, what temptation's going on right now? Have I tried to step ahead of God and it's not working so well? Am I, am I being tempted in this moment to worship something other than God? Like, what, what, what's, what's going on? Because, God, what is it that you want from me right now if I, too, will be God-centered, spirit-empowered, and word-focused? Lord, what is it that I need to do in this moment? Because I know I'm slipping, and I'm not sure exactly why. I mean, we all get there, don't we? Be self-critical this week. In those temptations, analyze what went wrong after the fact if you fail? Because this passage has given us that you and I might so look at our blessed Lord that we might try to respond in the same way he did by being God-centered, spirit-empowered, and word-focused. Does that make sense? Thirdly, and this one to me is really, really important. Luke wants you to know that Jesus suffered with temptation for three and a half years. And it became most intense before the cross. At the end. One of the reasons he wants you to know that is this, which is unpacked for us in greater detail in the book of Hebrews. Jesus knows the weight and the burden of temptation. I think I've used this illustration here before, but so excuse me if I do. I'm like a stick. Put a lot of pressure on a stick. What happens when you get to about this point? Snap. Jesus is like steel. Think about this solid bar of steel and you just take that thing and you bend it in temptation as far as you can. And what happens? It never breaks. It feels temptation to the whole and it never breaks. Which one understands temptation better? The stick or the steel? And through Christ's life, one time after another, the steel is bent, bent, and bent. 
and he never gives in. And it's ultimate climactic event where he says, Lord, if there's any other way, I wish this cup of your wrath could be passed, but your will be done. And he drinks the, the cup of the wrath of the Father that you and I might be our good portion. It's an incredible story. And so all through his life, he feels that. And you know what he says in the book of Hebrews? When you're tempted, you come to me. You come to my throne where there is grace and mercy and empowerment. Because I am for you. I am not against you. And I know the pain of temptation in a way that you never will. So when that temptation comes, you come to the throne of grace and say, God, I can't handle it. Jesus says, I can. And I know it in a way that you, you don't fully know it because of what I faced. And I will help you. Isn't that wonderful? So you read his temptation. You know, we, we, you, you know that statement that sometimes people wear on the wrist? What would Jesus do? WW would JD. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to make sure I get that right. Okay. Okay. WWJD. What would Jesus do? I, I, I like that for the second one. I don't like it for the first one. I guess I'd say, can I, can I give you three braces? Bracelets? Here, there. Here's the first one. First bracelet would be, what did Jesus do? uniquely bound up in him and him alone. Temptation tells me he was perfect so he could die for us and rule us one day and rule us now. Then I can put on the second bracelet. What would Jesus do? But only because I first saw his bracelet, what he uniquely did. But I get to put on one more bracelet. This third bracelet is what can Jesus do? So that I can go into his presence and I can say, I see what you did. I see what you call me to. I can't. And I come to him and he says, welcome. I feel your pain. You are my child and I will help. That's a mouthful, isn't it, folks? Temptation of Christ says a lot about the Son of God. I'm uh, going to close in prayer and then turn it back over to Tim to lead us into communion. Father,